Imagine with me that yesterday you got up and you thought, you know, it's a fairly pleasant winter morning. The sun is out. So I want to do something outside. So you made your way down to the Blue Hills Reservation and you decided I'm gonna, you're going to sit on a bench, drink some good coffee, and read a book. And so you sat down, you began to do that, enjoying the beauty around you. And then you saw some runners come by, and these are trail runners. Apparently those category of runners who... It's not good enough to like run on flat surfaces. They like to run like on mountain trails. Why? I'm not sure, but there's a subset that do that. So, so these three are. They, they walked by you and began to run up the hill and continue on. And so you sat and you drank coffee and read for a while, occasionally kind of glancing up. But eventually you glance up and you notice the three runners running together. So you decide to watch for a bit. and You see, well, there's one ahead of the other two. And eventually the other two catch up and they're kind of waving their arms, clearly yelling something at him. So the other runner pulls ahead again, even further ahead. The other two run hard to try to catch up and then to your astonishment, they tackle him. Tackle him pretty hard. And so you're thinking like, what is going on? Are they mugging him? Should I call 911? What should I do? We decided to just wait and watch. They help him up, kind of dust him off, seem to be talking together. And so you wait, and eventually the three of them come walking down past your bench. So you get the courage to ask the one who was tackled, why did your two acquaintances hurt you and tackle you? And the one who was tackled said, Oh, I can see why it would look that way, but actually, they tackled me to save my life. You see, the three of us run together these trails, and trail running can be dangerous. So we made a commitment to one another that, that if we were to see one of us about to, to run off a cliff or go in a dangerous spot, we would try to preserve the other's life. So we made this mutual commitment. And the two of them had run this trail before. I haven't. And so they knew I was headed towards a dangerous spot. So they actually first yelled, trying to get my attention, but I, I didn't think they were serious, so I just kept running. And apparently I was getting close to the cliff, and so they tackled me. And yes, it did hurt a bit. There was a few scratches that will take some time to heal, but ultimately those two I'm grateful to. For through their action, they actually saved my life. So as an outsider from a distance, you thought they had done great harm to that man. Maybe you should even call the police. But it turns out they had actually saved his life. And he was tremendously grateful. There's some pain involved, but it was a pain that saved, that rescued there's some aspects of the Christian community in the local church that can be like that. Typically to outsiders, can seem to only be hurting another. But from up close, these actions are actually attempting to save, to save a life, even to save a soul. That's what we're going to see this morning in the words of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 18. Today we're in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 823. Page 823. I encourage you to open up a Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you as we work through it this morning. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 18. 
the smaller numbers are verse numbers. We'll be in verse 15 through verse 20 today. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles. Following the service, please just go by there, grab one of those, and take it with you as our gift this morning. So Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, these are the words of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Diligently pursue the restoration of others together. Diligently pursue the restoration of others together. And we'll look at our passage in two parts. First, we'll see a loving responsibility. And then second, a weighty authority. A loving responsibility, a weighty authority. And we'll spend most of our time on the first one. So first, we see a loving responsibility in verses 15 through 17. Now, as always, if we want to be faithful to study the Scriptures well, we always want to study a text in its context. And that starts with what comes just before a passage and what comes after a passage. Now, you'll notice that we are actually dividing chapter 18 into three different sermons. Now, on one level, it would be easier to, to hold the context together if we preached one sermon on the entire chapter. But if you remember how long last week's sermon was, imagine three of those put together in one morning. That would be quite the morning. So for a number of reasons, we weren't just doing one sermon, although there's value in, in sort of flying at the higher level to see this story that's held across this chapter. And it's certainly possible to break the chapter up into these smaller units, but we just always want to be mindful what has come just before and what we'll see next week as well as we think about it. So if you remember last week, in the first 14 verses of chapter 18, we saw the call of Jesus to pursue Christ-likeness to enter the kingdom of heaven. To become like a, a child, childlikeness, not Christ-like. To become like a child, to be humble like a child, to enter in the kingdom of Jesus. We also saw Jesus warn us of the danger, one, of us causing others to sin. But then second, of the sin within us. The danger within us of prevailing sin that's very real. And then finally, we saw this role that we're to play as Christians of pursuing others who have wandered. He described it like a man who has a hundred sheep and, and one of the sheep has wandered, how we would pursue and bring that sheep back and there would be rejoicing. And so it is for those who are a part of the family of God in Christ. We pursue others who wander and there's to be great rejoicing. So just after describing the, the goodness, the appropriateness of believers seeking out other believers who have wandered, and the appropriate response being great rejoicing, then Jesus gives our instructions of today. When a believer sins. Now notice verse 15, Jesus' language here as he says, If your brother sins. And the sense of the word translated brother could equally well be brother or sister. 
Friends, this is one of the most beautiful aspects of God's grace. That our Heavenly Father sent forth Jesus Christ the Son so that through Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, he would provide this gift of salvation. And in this gift, there's so many different facets, but one aspect of it is that now we are adopted by God. Our Heavenly Father is now our Father, and every other Christian is now with us, a brother or sister in the family of God. This is not something that we earn or not that we seek, but it's only a gift that is received. So the Christian always is mindful that every other Christian is a brother or sister in Christ. So Jesus is describing here a situation where one believer in the same congregation sins and perhaps sins against another. So the text could be interpreted as, as one sins and, and others have seen it or they've sinned against this other person. So how does Jesus say we're to respond when another in the church has either sinned against us or sinned and we are aware of it? Jesus says we're to go to this brother or sister. Because as a family, we care for others in the family. We care for their spiritual good. And notice he says we're to go to them. This is not an elder, not a church leader. It certainly can happen. But the dominant pattern here is a brother going to a brother, a sister going to a sister, two siblings in Christ on equal footing. So friend, you're to go to your brother or sister directly and address it between you and him or her. Notice Jesus wants us to keep the circle as tight as possible. Limited exposure. Others don't need to know this. It can be handled between the two. And we're to go to him and tell him his fault. So we're to show him how he has sinned. And perhaps how he has sinned against you. Now, we need to be able to use biblical categories to do this. So if we're going to address this to someone, we need to be able to say, this is what the sin is, and, and here's why the scriptures say this is sin. It can't simply be based on my own preference or how I feel about a situation. There has to be an actual sin that has been committed. Now, as we consider the possibility of doing this, we, we always must check our own motives. You should ask yourself, why do I think I should do this? And in line with Jesus' teaching earlier in Matthew 7, we should always consider, is there a log in my own eye before I go to remove the speck in another's eye? And we want to seek to follow the Apostle Paul's instructions in Galatians 6.1, where Paul says this, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So when we come, we do not come with a club, we come with gentleness. My friend, if you're too eager to speak to another about their sin, you're not ready to talk with them about their sin. If you're in any way excited, gleeful about addressing another's sin, you're not ready to do it. And as we approach this other person, we should approach them seeking to give them the benefit of the doubt. Should be willing to ask them questions about the situation, about the action, and hear them. We should not show up with the verdict already settled in our own mind, and we're just showing up to announce the verdict to them. We want to assume the best. 
about our brother and sister because they're a part of the family with us. And what's the goal of our interaction? Look at verse 15. It is that he or she will listen. And in listening would be willing to understand, address the sin, and repent, turn back from the sin. And that through that you would gain your brother or sister. The brother or sister who was in danger of wandering, being lost, but instead now thankfully has been gained back. When our motive is primarily concern for this brother or sister, not primarily that he or she would make things right with us. That may flow from their repentance, but that's not by driving motivation. Not what it means to me, but out of concern for him or her. Friends, our goal is not to win the situation. It isn't to win the conflict. It isn't to win the argument. But notice it is to win him back. Those are not the same. It is to gain back this brother or sister. So, so we're not out after revenge. We're not seeking to shame the other. And if he listens, what should we do? Rejoice. Your brother, your sister has been gained back. There should be great joy in you if and when that happens. And then we should leave it behind. We don't continue to hold on to this. We don't hold it over their heads. We gladly, joyfully leave it behind as he returns. So our goal is this brother or sister would listen, repent, experience restoration with God and with others, and through that, God is always glorified. As his grace is known and experienced in a very practical, tangible way. And a local congregation is strengthened through this. Now you might be wondering, if someone sins against you, must you do this? Are you required to do this if someone sins against you? And the answer is, not necessarily. There is an alternative if someone sins against you. And this is the alternative. You have the freedom in Christ to choose to extend mercy and forgiveness and never bring it up to the other. You can freely bear it yourself and forgive. Now, if we do that, we don't have the option to hold on to it for future use. They hurt you, you say you forgive, you didn't bring it up, but six months later you think, you know what, I think I want to use that in the relationship, I bring it forward, then you didn't actually forgive. You didn't actually extend mercy. But that option is always available. Free and full forgiveness, as we'll see next week, this picture of extravagant forgiveness that all Christians are called to. Okay, but how often should we expect this to happen? In our lives, in the lives of a local church, fairly regularly. And you might think, wait, what? Among Christians, this should happen regularly? But I think it shouldn't surprise us if we know ourselves, if we know the prevalence of sin in our own hearts, and then the fact that in a church we're pushed together with a whole bunch of others who are saved by grace but who still struggle with sin, it actually shouldn't be surprising to us to think that in life together in a local church with some regular proximity that we will at times hurt one another, sin against one another. So, so we shouldn't be shocked. And the very fact that Jesus, by this teaching, he's clearly assuming this is going to happen. 
And I would suggest by him teaching us, he's assuming it's going to happen regularly. If it was a, a tiny, tiny percentage, why would Jesus spend the time to mention this? But he's saying this is a, a key teaching in the life of the church of how we live together because we will, as sinners saved by grace, sin against one another. But what do we do if we go to him, but he doesn't immediately listen and respond favorably? What should we do? Give it some time. Wait and give him some space. Not always, but often with some time, the heart can soften. With some time, we may gradually let our defenses the fact is, I think most of us, myself included, can easily be very stubborn. I see this often in my own heart and in the smallest, silliest situations. So let's say in, in our house that, that there's a, a bag of trash that needs to be taken out. So I walk by the bag of trash and I see it and I think to myself, I'm going to take that out. Now, why I don't take it out that very moment, that's a good question, it's a whole other topic, but, but I don't. I just, I just walk right by it. So I'm still thinking I'm going to take it out sometime, probably pretty soon, I'm going to do it. But let's say then my wife Brandy comes and says, hey, would you take that trash out? You know what happens in my heart in that moment? All of a sudden, I'm a whole lot less interested in taking it out. There's a stubbornness that rises up, like, well, I was going to do it. And now I find every reason in my own heart not to do it. Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe none of you have that. I've got some struggles, I'm sure, as a part of that. But that's at a very small level, just a stubbornness of someone else asking me to do something. But how much more when we're talking about weighty topics we'll be prone to, to feel like we aren't ready for that or might we be stubborn in this area? So friends, let's be patient with one another. But what if after some time he doesn't listen? Jesus shows us the way forward. Verse 16. He says, then take one or two others along with you. So it's still a very small circle, broadened only slightly. He draws this from Deuteronomy 19, this concept. These two didn't necessarily observe the sin, but they are there to, to help in the interaction. And especially if this moves forward to the church in the next step, that they would be witnesses to that. Preferably you would bring others who know the person. And these two that you bring can be church leaders like elders, but that's not required. It doesn't have to be. And the goal remains the same, that he would listen and that you would gain him. And again, if the response is not immediate, give it some time. There's rarely the need to rush the process. But what if after some time he still refuses to listen? We see verse 17. Then tell it to the church. Now, who is the church here? This is the, the local congregation, the local gathering of believers. And we continue to have the same goal, not trying to humiliate, not trying to heap shame. And the specifics of how this would play out may differ from congregation to congregation based upon their own sort of local polity. So here at Hope, we are following the New Testament. We have a, a plurality of elders that the members vote on, and then entrust a certain authority to them. So in this situation, like this, the elders will be brought in to this process, and the elders will then help to discern, is this a situation that rises to the level that should be brought to the members or not? But friends, we want to be sure to note 
Jesus is saying the final human authority here rests in the local congregation with the members, not with the elders. So the final question isn't what do the elders do, but it is what do the members do with this situation? So I hope it would be in the context of a private members meeting that the necessary details of a situation would be shared with the members. Enough details to communicate and inform so the members can act if necessary, but no more than is necessary or essential. And as the congregation addresses the situation, we're saying that they care enough, we love enough to speak to this. We love you. We want to see you return from wandering. And friends, this is no doubt a sobering, weighty time for church members. And the goal is the same, that he would listen, that he would repent and be gained, and that we could rejoice together at this. And again, typically there would be a time of waiting. During that time, the members would be encouraged. If, if you know this member well, as a friend, as a brother, as a sister, pursue him or her. Try to encourage repentance in their lives. And then we see verse 17. But if he refuses to listen, even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what is meant by this? Well, in the world of that day, the hearers of Jesus in that day, when they would hear the word Gentile and tax collector, they would immediately think of the category of some outside of God's family. Gentiles and tax collectors were outside of the covenant people of God. So to treat this person as a Gentile or tax collector is to, to now view them as one who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Now, we don't know for certain if a person is a believer or not. But if a person professes to be a Christian, professes to have faith in Christ, but continue to live in ongoing, unrepentant sin, the New Testament is clear that it calls into question if they really know Christ. All Christians sin. If I continue in ongoing, unrepentant sin, the question would be, he may not actually be a Christian. This is a part of why God brings believers into the life of the local church. One, so we'll have other Christians to assure us, give us assurance of our faith as they watch our lives. They don't see perfection, but they, they see some fruit over time. So when you're doubting, do I really know Christ, this brother or sister can say, let me encourage you. I've known you seven years. I see this fruit. You can have confidence and rest in the fact that you are in Christ. And if I wander from sin, I continue in unrepentance sin, that same group would say, we can no longer assure you of that. We don't know for sure. But the New Testament says you can't continue in unrepentance sin and truly know Christ. So this is the church taking an action of saying that this person is no longer a member of this congregation based upon this pattern of ongoing, unrepentant sin. So what has happened is a, is a person is removed from their membership on the roll as an act of this loving discipline because we're no longer considering them to be a Christian. Therefore, they're also not welcome to receive the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is for Christians, for those who trusted in Christ. So then historically, the church has called this removal from membership excommunication because they're no longer able to receive communion. So the person is removed from membership or they are excommunicated. Now for the members who remain after this, it, it then impacts how we think about our relationship with this person. We're not to, to shame this person, nor are we to shun them. But we also aren't to act like things are the way that they were. Because this friend 
needs Christ. He needs grace. She needs grace. So Jesus viewed Gentiles and tax collectors as outsiders. That is true. And Jesus came loving Gentiles and tax collectors that they might come to know him as Savior and King. So we do both. As a category, we think of this person as they're not a Christian as best we can discern. And just like Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors and pursued them, we do the same as believers pursuing this friend. And when a person is removed from the church in this way, in essence, we're simply agreeing with and stating what has already happened. Because by this person's ongoing sin, he has already functionally left the church by his actions. We're not taking someone who honestly wants to, who desires to be a part of the church and who wants to be with the church, fighting their own sin and throwing them out. That's not what has happened. This is someone who has already just given themselves, continued in this unrepentant sin. And our goal throughout this process is that this person who's engaging in this ongoing sin might come to the place of repentance and be restored and reengaged, that the church would rejoice with him. And so through this process, we're seeking to show enduring love, patient care, and prayerful hope. This is the part of the process generally called congregational discipline or church discipline. As we take steps in this, you can imagine it, it becomes more formal in the life of the church. Now, this is not exhaustive. This is not all the Bible says about congregational discipline, but this is certainly a significant part of it. My friends, as we think about this, I want you to especially hear this. In situations of abuse, if you're being abused physically, sexually, we are not urging you to go to the one who sinned against you. We're not urging you to go and confront them. We don't think that's wise or safe for you. So if you're currently experiencing abuse, we would encourage you, go to the authorities. We would encourage you, come to the elders. And as appropriate, we understand ourselves under the government authorities in these areas of abuse, and we will go to the authorities with you and for you as well. This is not a call to stay in Abuse. But if you find yourself in that, we want to help. You're not alone in that. Please don't allow someone to keep you in that. Now, what kind of sins are brought into this process? So first, the sin must be outward. We cannot discern another's heart, their motives, their thoughts. So it has to be an outward sin that can actually be observed or we can experience it directed towards us. So it has to be outward sin. Second, it also has to be ongoing sin. This is not one-off. We do not discipline because they did this sin once. But there's an ongoing pattern to it. Third, it also is serious. Now, on one level, all sin is serious, but we understand there are different grades of that. So let's say, for instance, that uh, we have a member of the church and uh, he, you were riding with him in his car in traffic, and traffic was really bad, and he really just kind of lost his temper in traffic. Kind of screamed in the car, you know, you know just really was frustrated. To the point that you were like, hey, man, that's, that's just not helpful. That's not normal. In fact, I, I think that's just unhealthy, sinful anger. That's different than if the same guy is driving in his car, the same traffic gets to him. At a stoplight, he gets out of his car and pounds on the hood of the person in front of him. 
gets arrested and taken to jail. Both are anger issues, but as we all know, one of those is more serious than the other. So we're thinking about ongoing, outward, serious, and the last one is so key, unrepentant. Unrepentance. And this is, the question is, is the person willing to call this sin? And is he or she legitimately trying to, to flee this sin and fight the sin? But as long as there are legitimate efforts to fight sin, to acknowledge sin, to repent of sin, that, that's what every Christian does. The church is filled with people, every single one of us, myself included, struggle with sin. So let's be clear on that. All of us struggle. The question is, am I struggling against it or have I given myself over to it? Am I trying to flee it and fight it? Or am I truly not repentant at all? So it's this ongoing, outward, serious, unrepentant sin. Now one sin that's included here, at first glance, we, we may not consider is when a member simply chooses not to gather with the church anymore. So they simply stop attending meaning they're, they're here locally, they're not ill. And we're not talking a few times, but across months. They're just not a gathering with the church. Even as others have encouraged them to regather, they're just choosing, as in the language of Hebrews 10, to, to forsake the gathering with God's people. Well, that too then would be outward. It's ongoing and it's serious, dangerous to their soul, and it's unrepentant. If they're saying, no, I, I'm just not going to gather with the church as well. So sometimes in a situation like that, we have to continue this process as well. Now, is it possible for a church to misuse this process and harm others? And the answer, sadly, is yes. So often we take good gifts from God and we misuse them. Example that would be in the area of discipline would be some parents who are rightly to discipline their children, try to order the lives of their children, can overdo that. So that there's much discipline in the life of their children, but there's no love. There's a lack of love and only discipline. On the other hand, sometimes a family might respond at the other extreme. There's absolutely no discipline, but much love, which is also, maybe not so obviously, destructive for the child. So there's too much and there's an absent of. And so it can be in the life of the church. Church discipline can be done in an unloving way. And when it is done in that way, it is wrong and it is destructive. And Christians can try to live together without discipline. And it also is destructive. So therefore, we must be careful and humble. We also must follow Jesus in this. Now, for most American Christians today, what I have just said sounds new, a bit outrageous, and honestly, perhaps somewhat cult-like. I mean, the vast majority of churches in America don't practice any form of membership and, and absolutely no form of church discipline like this. And maybe for you this morning, you're, you're thinking that same thing. So, so you're wondering, how could this be loving? You know, we think, well, this is inconsistent with Jesus' teaching to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we're to love our enemies and to do unto others, we'd have them do unto us. How does this fit with that? Friends, we need to see that Jesus is saying that this process 
is also an act of love. What seems to be a harder form of love to be sure, but an essential form of loving one another. These are the very words of Jesus. This is his design. We saw last week in chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, how Christians are to seek out other believers who may be wandering. Like a man with a hundred sheep, one wanders, and he goes and gets the one. And here Jesus is showing us what some of that looks like, the pursuit of the wandering sheep. Now sometimes this pursuit of the wandering goes relatively easily and quickly, thankfully. So someone addresses the sin to them, they're, they're, they're glad to hear it, eager to respond. They repent freely. Friends, that's a beautiful reality, and often it happens that way, and there is much rejoicing. But unfortunately, sometimes the wandering sheep doesn't want to be found and doesn't want to be brought home. So the shepherd comes, and the sheep runs further. The shepherd comes close, and the sheep bites the shepherd. And for each of us, if we are wandering in sin, we will often become like a biting sheep. That if someone were to come to us and address our sin, we would be tempted to say something like, well, who are you? I mean, I know stuff about you too, and you're going to come and talk to me about my sin? Or we might turn it on the church. Well, well, how can a church be loving and do this? And begin to create a Jesus of our own making, saying something like this, well, Jesus is loving, and my loving Savior would never ordain this. Friends, hear this clearly. Yes, Jesus is loving. And the loving Savior loved us enough and knows us well enough to provide a way to help us when we wander. So, friend, we should be self-aware that when we're tempted to wander, we'll be tempted to turn against those who are seeking us. And, friend, that's also reality as you seek others who are wandering. At times they may push you away. At times they may bite. For Jesus Christ came to pay for our sins so that repentance would be possible. Now, because of Christ, it's possible for us to to flee sin and to fight sin, to be free of the sin that overwhelms us. We can know real repentance and forgiveness in Christ. For Jesus loves us too much to leave us in our sin, so he sends his church out to pursue us. He loves us. That's what those people are coming for us. They are from Jesus when we're wandering in sin. We see an example of this in Jesus' loving correction of Peter. Peter, one of his closest friends and disciples, denied even knowing Jesus three times. And after his resurrection, Jesus went to Peter, correcting him, forgiving him, restoring Peter. So we see we have a loving responsibility. And then in connection to that, we also see, much more briefly, second, a weighty authority. A weighty authority in verses 18 through 20. So Jesus continues. He's on the same topic. Verse 18, he says this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is very similar language we saw several weeks ago in Matthew 16, particularly verse 19. So you may want to go back and listen to that sermon. That, some helpful explanation there from Mike as well. And here we see that Jesus is saying that he has delegated authority to Peter, to the apostles, and to the church. 
And that's true then and continues today. So very important, this authority is not possessed by an individual Christian in isolation. It's not possessed by a denominational structure or denominational church leaders, but by the members of the congregation. That's who carried this authority. And by this binding, Jesus is referring here to the decision that a local congregation might make in a situation like I just described. A person is living this ongoing, unrepentant sin. They're unwilling to turn back. All these steps have been taken, and now the members are removing him from membership. In that situation, that church, if they're following Jesus' word, the scriptures, following the pattern Jesus has given, these decisions are binding. And by this, we're not making decisions that are somehow now binding on God as if we're in authority over him. But by these decisions we're making that are binding, we're actually just joining in the decisions that God has already been making. So friend, this is what happens when a local church meets together and votes to remove a member. To just the surface level, it looks like just a, a bunch of people sitting in a room like this taking a vote that may seem tedious. But you see that Jesus is saying there's something much more happening in that vote. There's something spiritual, even eternal, happening in that. So friend, if you're a member of a church, those votes really do matter. Your participation matters. That's the continued idea, verse 19 and 20. Jesus assures us that when the church gathers to do this important work, by pursuing a wandering member, we have the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit with us. The support of our Heavenly Father in Heaven who's at work in the significant work through us. So friends, this is good news for us. When we seek to do the often difficult, typically complicated, time-consuming, and very often painful work of loving correction. We can have confidence that Christ is always with us. He promised to especially be with us in situations like this. So then as we wind out, if we step back and think about chapter 18, we see this call for humility as the family of God lives together. We're brought into the family through this humble trust in our Savior. We're brought into these relationships. We're aware of the temptation that we could cause somebody else to sin and our own temptation to sin within. We see this culture that Jesus desires for this church and every church. A family marked by humility. Aware of our own propensity to sin. The likelihood we could wander into sin. And a people who are eager to extend forgiveness to one another. And even willing to do the weighty work of addressing one another's sin. Friends, we do not want to be a church that is always just watching one another with an eagle eye for any misstep or sin that we might address. That is not what Jesus is pointing us to. That's not what we want to be. But we also must not be a church where we ignore or turn a blind eye to sin because we're fearful of confronting others because that's dangerous for their own soul. My friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you had joined us this morning. And I recognize what I've just said probably in entirety sounds crazy. You're probably thinking, I thought they were a cult and they've just proved it by what he just said. 
And I understand there's some crazy things in there, but I would also say, I wonder in your life, if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you're wandering from who you desire to be, wandering perhaps into some unhelpful or destructive habits, and did you ever wish there would be some people who would love you enough to come looking for you, to even try to persuade you to turn back? Now, on the whole, what I've said this morning only makes sense after we trust in Christ as Savior and King. But could it be that there could be some helpfulness, some truthfulness to this? If you'd like to know more, I'll be at the door. I'd love to chat with you. You can note it on the card. We'd love for you to come back next week. We don't always talk about crazy stuff completely. It's usually partly crazy, but not completely crazy. So we'd love for you to join us next week. For if you are a Christian, I would ask, are you connected to a local church where you can carry out chapter 18? If not, I would encourage you this week just to read chapter 18 and think through, can this be done by a Christian living in isolation from other believers? And the answer is, it can't. We have to live close enough proximity that we could potentially sin against another and they could sin against us. Close enough proximity that we could seek to pursue someone who's wandering. So friend, if you only attend sporadically, or if you have a tendency to just bounce from church to church, I would encourage you, friend, join a church. You won't find a perfect church, but we all need a local church where we're committed to it for the good of your own soul and for the good of that congregation as well. If you're interested, we'd love for you to consider joining this church. But if not this church, friend, we would love to help you find a church in the city. So for whatever reason, something about us or location is unhelpful, I would love to help you find a church. So please ask me. I'd love to help you find a place. And friend, if this is your church, if you're a member of Hope, friend, this is what we want to carefully do together. It's what Jesus says we must do together. He came to provide his love, grace, and salvation as a gift. And he desires that we who've received that gift would live together embracing our loving responsibility, being willing to even exercise this weighty authority that we might diligently pursue the restoration of others together. So friends, may we do this. May we pray that we would do this well, humbly and carefully for the good of one another and for the glory of God.